Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. This morning we come in this study of the Lord's Prayer to the sixth sermon in this series, and we are focused on the fourth of six petitions that make up the bulk of the prayer, these 57 words that Christ gave his disciples in response to their request to be taught how to pray, these 57 words that serve as both a model prayer and also a guideline for how we are to think and how we are to live. We come now to a request, to a petition that sort of jumps us across a bit of a divide. The pronouns change. In the first three petitions, the focus has been on God. We are saying, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We now shift and are praying, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our debts. Lead us, not into temptation. It's not an insignificant shift. Now, it is not as big a shift as some people, I think, think it is. It is not this sort of uh, big step down from things that were important to things that are now somehow less important. As one writer said, from the cosmic and lofty to the mundane and parochial. No, these petitions are all important. There's no second-class status as we shift into uh, the second half of of the, of the six. And I say that recognizing that um, some of us are inclined to think that way if for no other reason than when we think about praying for our daily bread, we've never really wondered whether we would have any. Uh, indeed, in the West, for the most part, when it comes to food, the problem is not that we have too little. The problem is trying to walk away when we have already eaten enough. But this petition is very real, and indeed it is very challenging, both to understand and also to apply. In terms of the first, I'll simply point out that there are a half a dozen different ways that people have understood the word bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Some say bread means bread. It just means what it says. Others say bread refers to all food. We're just using bread here as a bit of a, of a placeholder. It's just the, the, the most basic of staples. It's the most important food, so bread substitutes for everything else. Now, I realize that most of you don't think that bread is the most important food. You would nominate chocolate or coffee or something else, but these are Jesus' words, so work with me here. Bread as a placeholder for all food. There is a third group that suggests that bread actually refers to everything we need in order to live our daily life. This was the view put forward by the Reformers. Martin Luther, writing in uh, a catechism that he uh, produced for, for those that were studying under him, asks the question, what is meant by daily bread, and answers it this way. Daily bread means everything we need for our bodily well-being. Food, drink, clothes, shoes, houses, home, land, 
animals, money, a godly husband or wife, devout children, good workers, honest and faithful leaders, good government, good weather, peace, health, law and order, an honorable name, faithful friends, trustworthy neighbors, and things like that. The list goes on. So there are some that say it means bread. There are some that say it means all food. There are some that say it means everything that we need in order to live life. There are some that say it not only means everything we need to live daily life, it means everything we need in order to live a devout life. So it includes food and shelter, but it goes on to include things like faith and wisdom and courage and holiness. And then there's another group that says, no, you're, you're sort of headed down the wrong track. Jesus is referring to himself. He is the bread of life. Who's right in this, uh, this sort of litany of different options? I, if I were forced to pick an answer, I would probably go with Martin Luther. But if uh, I were taking a multiple choice test, I would be looking for that option that says all of the above or, you know, four of the five above. Because while I get a little bit nervous uh, when Westerners, again, who by and large have not been hungry in a long time unless they're on a diet, when, when they look at this passage and think, well, we need to spiritualize it because clearly he doesn't mean we need food— No, I think it actually, it clearly has to include that because much of the planet is going without and they need food. But while I'm a little nervous about it being spiritualized, I think we also have to recognize that Jesus says man does not live by bread alone, right? And additionally, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and after he had given thanks, he said, this bread is my body, which is given for you. I suspect there are a number of things in play here. As I said, it's a challenging passage to understand, but it's an even more challenging passage to apply. I want to make four points today and leave you with a couple challenges. The first point is this. We need to recognize that when we pray this prayer, and in particular this petition, we are declaring our dependence upon God. There is no way to pray this request, to make this petition known to God, without acknowledging that we have needs and that we cannot meet the needs that we have. Our lives are fragile. We are dependent beings. There is a creator. We are the creatures. We depend upon him for everything we need for life, breath, and health. Now, this should not be new news because it's just, it's not new. We are dependent. And yes, we can move towards greater independence. We, we can do things with what God creates and shape them and mold them so that we have food, right? We don't create in the same sense that God creates out of nothing, but we can start with what we're given. We can start with seeds, and we can grow the food that we need to eat. But we have to start with the seeds, and we need land in which to plant it, and we need the sun to shine, and we need water to fall, and we need. Right? And yes, we can raise cattle so that we've got beef to eat, but 
We have to start with cattle, and we have to have land, and there has to be something for them to eat, and the weather has to cooperate, right? We, we need the system to work because we can't make it unless everything that God has sort of set in place works. We need. We are dependent upon God. He is the one who provides. About the only thing that we can claim truly as our own without help from God is sin. Everything else, (laughs) he's had some major part in delivering. And so this petition is, for starters, a declaration of dependence upon God, which is a good thing to do because we need daily to be reminded that we are dependent upon God. Point number two, this uh, petition makes it clear that everything matters to God. If I had uh, just been handed the six petitions that make up this prayer, and I didn't know the Lord's Prayer, and I was asked to place them in order, I might have been okay up until this point. I might have actually gotten, you know, God's holiness, his kingdom, and his will as one, two, and three. But I almost certainly would not have moved to bread next. I would have either moved to forgiveness or to the spiritual power we need to overcome temptation. And that's because those two items sound more spiritual than bread. And the reason they sound more spiritual than bread is because I occasionally slip into uh, the, the, the mistaken idea that there is a distinction between the sacred and the secular, between things that matter to God and things that don't matter to God. The truth is, everything matters to God. Absolutely everything everywhere matters to God. This is, a, this is a mistake that uh, many people have made. I'm certainly not the first. We see this kind of error all the way back with the ancient Greeks, Socrates and Plato and the like. Plato was famous for saying that there exists this, this spiritual world of the, of the forms, of the archetypes, and, and, and everything that we see down here in this material world is, is less than the perfection that exists in the spiritual world. And and this idea that what is material, matter, things that you can touch, is less good than the spiritual invaded the early church. It was part of the culture, and and they breathed it in. And so we see that that even as the New Testament writers, as the apostles are still writing, they are fighting these heresies, these mistaken ideas that, that crop up in terms of asceticism or Gnosticism or some of the other challenges they faced. It's hard for us to imagine, but in the early church there were people who said, we believe that Jesus Christ is God, we just don't believe that he was really a man. I mean, today people say, I I believe that Jesus was a man, I'm just not sure that he was God. But but in the early church the error went the other direction because, because influenced by this big division between sacred and secular, thinking that this world was bad, there were people who said, no, in fact, Jesus could not have taken on a real body because a real body would be bad. 
And we see this idea in in circulation increasingly today as those of us who live in the West look to the East for our worldviews, influenced by Hinduism and Buddhism and and other Eastern beliefs. You see, if you progress down those pathways towards their understanding of spiritual maturity, you're not looking for God to meet your needs as much as you're looking to rise above those needs. You're looking to be able to deny those needs, to squelch those desires. We don't see them as good. But this petition makes it very clear there's nothing second-rate about our needs. There's nothing second-rate about about having physical needs. God made us this way. One One of the big metaphors for the kingdom of God are banquet feasts. And this was part of the celebration that we see in, the, in, in, in the, the Jews. Food is not lesser in any extent. God is just as concerned with, with your Friday nights and your Wednesday afternoons as he is with your Sunday mornings. It all matters to him. Now, if you have not um, sort of felt the full weight of this, uh, of this idea— uh, then I I just want to tell you, it's jarring when you get it. And I have watched people when the light bulb goes on and they suddenly get it. And I can tell you exactly where I was standing and when I was standing there when I first understood this point. I had not even yet come to faith in Christ. I was a senior in high school. I was in this 18-month period where I was wrestling with things. I, I, the gospel had been presented to me. I was interested. I was, it was a push-pull period. It took me a lot. I had lots of questions. It took me a while to step over the line. And I remember I was on the phone, standing in the dining room, talking to Tom Gale, a man instrumental in my making a decision for Christ. And he said something, and I, I stopped, and I go, wait a minute. Do you mean to tell me that if I become a Christian— that God actually will, will have some sort of concern or interest or be directing me in terms of who I date? Are you kidding me? And he said, absolutely. I said, where does it end? It's just like, it's so invasive. It's like everything. Yes, everything everywhere matters to God. There are no second-class issues. And so we need to recognize that we can bring our physical requests to God. Now, having made this point, I want to dial it back ever so slightly to say, I do believe that the order of the petitions that Christ has given us is important. In in fact, I think that one of the things that that we are prone to do is to get to this fourth petition too early. We come before God in prayer, and instantly it's what we want or what we need. And I believe we do ourselves a disservice. It's dishonoring to God, but we also do ourselves a disservice because to the extent that we go in order and we remind ourselves, right, that, that ultimately at the end of the day, it's God's glory, God's kingdom, God's will that matters. When we move through that, 
there, there, is a, there is an ordering of our private world that takes place. There, there, there is some clarity and focus that comes to our inner life that we need to, to be able to see our needs through the prism of God and who he is. So, yes, I think there's some order to these petitions that we need to recognize, but do not think that that our physical needs, what we need to eat, doesn't matter to God. Everything, everywhere matters to him. That brings us to point three. We must note that this petition is for today. We, we are praying, give us this day our daily bread. And, and uh, I don't want to overstate this point because indeed in other passages of Scripture, in particular the Proverbs, we're going to see the need to think long term, right? We're, there's going to be celebration for those who look ahead for the winter and make provision, and we need to have that kind of a perspective but there is a very different sense of dependency on God that is fostered by praying for real needs in real time as opposed to saying something like, you know what, uh, Lord, I got today covered. I- I'm actually pretty good for this week and uh, this month, and I probably could go for a couple years, but what I'd like is enough money to know that even if stocks tank again, I really don't have anything to worry about. And that is an attitude that permeates our fallen minds, right? We want independence. We want self-sufficiency. We want to be above all the kinds of concerns that we might have, even though that almost never works in terms of our relationship with God. We do not do well when we don't recognize our dependence. We see this Christ stating as much in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Because because the people who recognize their dependence are going to foster an intimacy with God that otherwise is lacking. I, I love to be around people who love God and who get this. And oftentimes, it's people who love God and who are poor. Because they pray with an intimacy, and they thank God for things I have long stopped even thinking about. I remember a little girl saying, Dear God, thank you that you woke me up this morning. This was, this was in, a, in another country, and, and you go, you know what? Probably not everybody wakes up in this village every morning. One of the things that I think we have to step back and recognize as we consider a petition like this is that we are wealthy. Everyone in this room is wealthy because if you're in the United States, you're wealthy. In light of global wealth, in light of historical economics, we're wealthy. Uh, if, if you own a home in the United States, I mean, even if the bank basically owns it, but you're making mortgage payments, you're in the top 2% of the world's wealth. And, and, and I had someone send me a, a link to a website where you go in and you, you type in your, your salary, 
and uh, it tells you sort of where you rank uh, in terms of global economics. And I was, I, I knew basically that it was going to be shocking. I was remarkably shocked. So I realized we've got people who, who've stumbled in here this morning, unemployed and students that are just struggling to try and make it. It's hard for you to look around and say, this applies to me. But really, it sort of applies to all of us that are in this room, some of us more than others. We're wealthy. And we have to recognize that part of what Christ celebrates and part of the reasons why there are warnings that Christ gives very clearly to the rich is that we need to foster a daily dependence upon God. And when we get away from that, we generally don't do as well. Yes, we need people who have money to be able to fund all the kinds of ministries and projects and other things that go on. Yes, I, economics is a complicated topic on its own. Theologically, it's a complicated topic. It's not money itself that's the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all sorts of evil. It's a big topic, but let's just recognize what we're being encouraged here is to, just to cultivate uh, and to fight for a daily dependence Upon God. And this, by the way, is exactly the situation that God placed the Jews in when he brought them out of Egypt. You, you no doubt remember the Exodus. And Moses finally pervades after the ten plagues on Pharaoh, and, and, and with like 24 hours' notice, two million slaves head out of Egypt and into the desert. Two million slaves plus livestock. And you can imagine heading out into the desert that very quickly the question comes up, hey, who brought the food? Who brought the water? We're going to be here for 40 years. Did anyone pack appropriately? Right? Big miracle in the book of Exodus that God keeps these people alive in the desert for 40 years. And how does he do it? Among other things, Food falls from the sky. Manna. We don't know exactly what it is. The Hebrew word manna literally translates, what is it? So that's what they called it. We don't know what it is. It's what is it? And it falls from the sky, and it's there on the ground every morning. And God said, you can pick up enough for your family for today. But if you try to pick up more, it will go bad and draw bugs. Except on Friday mornings, Saturday being the Sabbath for Jews, on Friday God said there will be an extra provision and you can pick up twice as much on Friday and it will not go bad. He cultivated in them a daily awareness that it had, the food had to fall from the sky. For them to make it. So, point number one, this is a declaration of dependence. Point number two, everything matters to God. Point number three, we've got to cultivate this daily dependence. Point number four, we must recognize that the pronouns here are plural. It's not give me this day my daily bread, it's not even give my family the food that they need, or give my family and my friends or those who show up at at my local congregation. It is Father. So everyone who is going to call on the name of God, Father, give 
us this day our daily bread. And I would submit to you that because this prayer is not just a model prayer, it is actually a guideline for how we are to think and live, that that incumbent in this petition, in this request, is an awareness that we're in this together. And we can't simply pray this prayer and then go eat lunch when we know that there are people who are not going to be able to eat lunch. We, we can't simply pray this prayer and march on knowing that there are people who didn't have bread today and they're unlikely to have bread tomorrow unless something changes. Now this gets very um, invasive and, and you just end up with tension. And I, I, I'm not uh, going to make any apologies for the tension. I think we have to live with it, and we have to figure out what we're doing about it. I continue to be haunted by an experience that I had on one of my trips overseas. I just arrived in Africa for um, some uh, mission meetings and gatherings, and we had a couple hours on that first afternoon after we landed, and the people there said, you know, we can give you a tour. The meetings don't start for a few hours. Would you like a tour of Nairobi? We said, great. So we're walking around, and pretty quickly— we start to draw uh, a number of the, the street kids, uh, you know, as young as four and five, uh, most of them not any older than 10 or 12, and we suddenly have got a dozen uh, of these homeless street kids that are coming up to us. And the people we're with said, you can't, you don't make eye contact, keep walking, don't look at them, don't give them anything, just keep moving. And after a little while, they said, you know what, this isn't working for me. And he says, you cannot give them money. You have no idea how that's going to play. You got to tell them you don't have any money. And I said, well, first of all, I am a walking dollar sign. I said, it's clear that I have money. And he said, secondly, I can't tell them I don't have any money because it's a lie. I have money. I said, what can, what can we do? And they said, well, if you really want to do something, then let's go, and we'll, we'll go into the store, we'll buy some loaves of bread, and we'll come out and, and, and give them the bread. I said, great. So we went in and bought 10, 12 loaves of bread, and we come out, and suddenly the group of 10 or 12 kids is now 50 and then it's 75, and we're handing out this food, and it becomes a mob, and somebody comes up behind me and grabs some of the loaves of bread th- that I still had left, and, and, it's, and it just becomes a, a free-for-all, and they're sort of fighting, and they're diving into the middle of this thing. And I'm standing here watching this, and, and I, I'm thinking, you know, this reminds me of, of feeding seagulls off of the back of the ferries we used to ride in Washington State. Except these are children. And, and it's, just, it's just haunting to think that if something doesn't happen, they're not going to make it. I don't think we can pray. Give us us this day our daily bread and not do something about this so what can we do well for starters i think it is incumbent upon us to be phenomenally generous with what we have I'm not going to. I'm not going to preach a stewardship sermon but let me remind you of some points i've made in the past if those who claim Christ as Lord gave 10% of their income, which 
to me, is a starting point. I understand Scripture to suggest 10% goes to the local church and more money goes beyond that. That has been our habit and practice since we've been married. And so I think it's more than 10%. But let's just imagine that the people who are following Christ gave 10% of, of their income away. We would have more than enough money for money not to be the issue to stop people from being fed. As a matter of fact, we would have we would have exponentially more money than we need. It's, it, it, we've got everything we need in order for no one to go hungry. So I think we have to be generous in giving money. Secondly, I think there are opportunities occasionally to give food. And we put in, uh, in, the, in the bulletin today, in the, in the worship program, uh, a little flyer about some food that you can bring back here. We've had a food bank for... 20 years or more, and we have more people accessing the food at the food bank here than we have had in the past. And so this is an easy opportunity for you to uh, look at that list, and it coaches you on the kinds of food that is most needed. Just as a general statement, food banks and and benevolence funds like St. James here at Christ Church, generally money is the best thing to give because uh, money is, is uh, easy for those who are on the ground and, and are trying to meet specific needs to direct it towards specific needs. But occasionally, food is the right thing. There's an opportunity for you to bring food. You can bring it back here, and we'll make sure that it goes uh, to people who need it. A third thing that uh, can be done, and this is just a, a little challenge I would set before you, is to take an assessment of your life and to reflect on whether or not you actually even are around people who go hungry because they don't have enough. Not hungry because they're on a diet, but do you actually rub shoulders with people like that because they're around, or is your life a little bit too insulated from the real needs of a real world? It's easy to be insulated, and it's a whole lot... uh, Life is easier if you're insulated, but I don't think it's the life that we've been called to. And then finally, let me issue a a challenge that probably doesn't apply to many of you, but it might apply to one or two, and that is some of you have the uh, capacity, and and you probably, whether you know it or not, have the passion, and you have the the skills and, and the time, or you could make the time to actually take on a problem of some significance, and it may take you five years to make a difference, it may take you ten, it may take you the rest of your life to start to turn these things around, but you have opportunities to use the gifts and resources God has given you in ways that actually push back the night and provide the daily bread in the widest definition of that to people who need it. And I want to say to you, this is remarkably challenging work, and it requires the very best thinking you can do. If poverty were simple, we would have fixed it by now. It is very complicated. And let me just give you an example. I I met a guy um, 10 years ago in Ethiopia, and he was being funded by a, a, a foundation that I have worked with to do doctoral studies on famine prevention, uh, specifically around Ethiopia. 
And he was doing these studies after he had been placed in charge of a, of a World Vision food distribution center in the late 80s in Ethiopia. He was a young man at the time, really, really just out of college, and uh, it was on staff with World Vision, and they placed him at this camp. And when he took over, one person was starving to death every hour, and they would starve to death at that rate for the next two years. It took him six years to turn things around and actually to become a model for Ethiopia and Sub-Saharan Africa of how to actually mobilize on on almost a a regional scale to fix this kind of an issue. And he said, Mike, you know, it's just not as simple as having food. You have to understand the Ethiopian culture is such that you never ask for help until you have exhausted every possible means of self-sufficiency that you know of. He goes, that's why the people you saw looked like human skeletons. Because they had eaten all their food. They had eaten all the seed that was going to be used to plant crops next year. They had dismantled their houses and sold it, sometimes board by board. And it was only when they had nothing left at all that they would come looking for help. And he said, when they got here, oftentimes by the time they walked to where we were, it was too late. All we could do really is try to help them die with some dignity. And he said, now, Americans saw the pictures of the Ethiopians starving, and you were very generous. And he said, you sent all kinds of food. And he said, but the problem is you sent this food, and now... Those farmers that had still made it and had planted their crops for the next year suddenly looked at a market where nobody was buying food because food was free. And he said, so then the rest of the economy tanked. And he said, in order to fix this, you've got to understand things about government and about banking and about nutrition and about agriculture and and, and, uh, about just infrastructure and distribution. He goes, this takes the best thinking we've got. And so he was doing doctoral studies on how to help prevent and then mobilize aid in these kinds of situations. Now, I'm not calling for you to go to Ethiopia. That that may, may be, but may not be what God is calling you to. But there are daily needs within 10 miles of this steeple. There are people that need to learn how to read. There are people that need other kinds of education. There's so many different ways that you could say, I am going to not just give up a Saturday I'm not just going to volunteer, you know, every quarter, but I am going to invest my life and bring the gifts and abilities and skills and resources and network that I have to go after one of these challenges. This isn't for everybody, but I believe there are people out there that need to be told. There is more that you can do with your life or the second half of your life than golf. And this would be one of those challenges. This is, as I said, a remarkably challenging passage, not just to understand, but also to apply. It is a declaration of dependence upon God. It is a declaration that everything matters to Him. It is a recognition that we need to foster a daily dependence upon Him and that we own the the problems and challenges that are being faced 
by God's people everywhere. I want to invite you to close this sermon with me, stand, and to recite with me the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom...